The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit. Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 11 The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say about the planet of Golgofrinchen. It is a planet with an ancient and mysterious history, rich in legend, red and occasionally green, with the blood of those who sought in times gone to conquer her. A land of parched and barren landscapes, of sweet and sultry air, heady with the scent of the perfumed springs that trickle over its hot and dusty rocks and nourish the dark and musky lichens beneath. A land of fevered brows and intoxicated imaginings, particularly amongst those who taste the lichens. A land also of cool and shaded thoughts amongst those who have learnt to forswear the lichens and find a tree to sit beneath. A land also of steel and blood and heroism. A land of the body and of the spirit. This was its history. And in all this ancient and mysterious history, the most mysterious figures of all were without doubt those of the great circling poets of Arium. These circling poets used to live in remote mountain passes where they would lie in wait for small bands of unwary travellers, circle round them and throw rocks at them. And when the travellers cried out saying, why didn't they go away and get on with writing some poems instead of pestering people with all this rock throwing business, they would suddenly stop and then break into one of the 794 great song cycles of Vasilian. These songs were all of extraordinary beauty, and even more extraordinary length, and all fell into exactly the same pattern. The first part of each song would tell, um, would tell how there went, once went forth from the city of Vasilian a party of five sage princes and four horses. The princes, who are of course brave, noble and wise, travel widely in distant lands, fight giant ogres, pursue exotic philosophies, take tea with weird gods, and rescue beautiful monsters from ravening princesses, before finally announcing that they have achieved enlightenment, and that their wanderings are therefore accomplished. The second, and much longer, part of each song would then tell of all their bickerings about which one of them is going to have to walk back. All this lay in the planet's remote past. It was, however, a descendant of one of these eccentric poets who invented the spurious tales of impending doom which enabled the people of Golgofrinchen to rid themselves of an entire useless third of their population. The other two-thirds stayed firmly at home and lived full, rich and happy lives until they were all suddenly wiped out by a virulent disease contracted from a dirty telephone. That night, the ship 
crash-landed on an utterly insignificant little blue-green planet which circled a small, unregarded yellow sun in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy. In the hours preceding the crash, Ford Prefect had fought furiously, but in vain, to unlock the controls of the ship from their preordained flight path. It had quickly become apparent to him that the ship had been programmed to convey its payload safely, if uncomfortably, to its new home, but to cripple itself beyond all hope of repair in the process. Its screaming, blazing descent through the atmosphere had stripped away most of its superstructure and outer shielding, and its final inglorious belly flop into a murky swamp had left its crew only a few hours of darkness during which to revive and offload its deep frozen and unwanted cargo for the ship to begin before the ship uh, begin be, before the ship began to settle almost at once, slowly upending its gigantic bulk into the stagnant slime. Once or twice, during the night, it was a starkly silhouetted uh, image against the sky as burning meteors, the detritus of its descent, flashed across the sky. In the grey pre-dawn light, it let out an obscene, roaring gurgle and sank forever into the stinking depths. When the sun came up that morning, it shed its thin, watery light over a vast area, heaving with wailing hairdressers, public relations executives, opinion pollsters, and the rest, all clawing their way desperately to dry land. A less strong-minded son would probably have gone straight back down again. But it continued to climb its way through the sky, and after a while the influence of its warming rays began to have some restoring effect on the feebly struggling creatures. Countless numbers had, unsurprisingly, been lost to the swamp in the night, and millions more had been sucked down with the ship. But those that survived still numbered hundreds of thousands, and as the day wore on, they crawled out over the surrounding countryside, each looking for a few square feet of solid ground on which to collapse and recover from their nightmare ordeal. Two figures, however, moved further afield. From a nearby hillside, Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent watched the horror of which they could not feel apart. Filthy! Dirty trick to pull, muttered Arthur. Ford scraped his stick along the ground and shrugged. An imaginative solution to a problem, I'd have thought, he said. Why can't people just learn to live together in peace and harmony, said Arthur. Ford gave a loud, very hollow laugh. Forty-two, he said with a malicious grin. Nope, doesn't work. Never mind. Arthur looked at him as if he'd gone mad, and seeing nothing to indicate the contrary, realised that it would be perfectly reasonable to assume that this had in fact happened. What do you think will happen to them all? He said after a while. In an infinite universe, anything can happen, said Ford. Even survival. Strange, but true. 
A curious look came into his eyes as they passed over the landscape, and then settled again on the scene of misery below them. I think they'll manage for a while, he said. Arthur looked up sharply. Why'd you say that? he said. Ford shrugged. Just a hunch, he said, and refused to be drawn any further on questions. Look, he said suddenly. Arthur followed his pointing finger. Down amongst the sprawling masses a figure was moving, or perhaps lurching would be a more accurate description. He appeared to be carrying something on his shoulder. As he lurched from prostrate form to prostrate form, he seemed to wave whatever the something was at them in a drunken fashion. After a while, he gave up the struggle and collapsed in a heap. Arthur had no idea what this was meant to mean to him. Movie camera, said Ford, recording the historic moment. Well, I don't know about you, said Ford again after a moment, but I'm off. He sat a while in silence. After a while, this suddenly seemed to require some comment. Uh, when you say you're off, what do you mean exactly? said Arthur. Good question, said Ford. I'm getting total silence. Looking over his shoulder, Arthur saw that he was twiddling with knobs on a small black box. Ford had already introduced this box to Arthur as a sub-ether sensomatic, but Arthur merely nodded absently and had not pursued the matter. In his mind the universe still divided into two parts, the Earth and everything else. The Earth having been demolished to make way for a hyperspace bypass meant that this view of things was a little lopsided, but Arthur tended to cling to that lopsidedness as being his last remaining contact with his home. Sub-ether sensomatics belonged firmly in the everything else category. Not a sausage, said Ford, shaking the thing. Sausage, thought Arthur to himself, as he gazed listlessly at the primitive world about him. What I wouldn't give for a good earth sausage. Would you believe, said Ford in exasperation, that there are no transmissions of any kind within light years of this benighted tip? Are you listening to me? What? said Arthur. We're in trouble, said Ford. Oh, said Arthur. This sounded like month-old news to him. Until we pick up anything on this machine, said Ford, our chances of getting off this planet are zero. It may be some freak standing wave effect in the, the planet's magnetic field, in which case we just travel round and round until we find a clear reception area. Okay, it could be that. Coming? He picked up his gear and strode off. Arthur looked down the hill. The man with the movie camera had struggled back up to his feet, just in time to film one of his other colleagues collapsing. Arthur picked a blade of grass and strode off after Ford. I trust you had a pleasant meal, 
said Zani Whoop to Zaphod and Trillian, as they rematerialized on the bridge of the starship of Heart of Gold and lay panting on the floor. Zaphod opened some eyes and glowered at him. You! he spat. He staggered to his feet and stomped off to find a chair to slump into. He found one and slumped into it. I have uh, programmed the computer with the improbability coordinates pertinent to our journey, said Zani Whoop. We will arrive there very shortly. Meanwhile, why don't you relax and prepare yourself for the meeting? Zaphod said nothing. He got up again and marched over to a small cabinet from which he pulled a bottle of old Jank's spirit. He took a long pull at it. When all this is done, said Zaphod savagely, it's done, all right? I'm free to go and do what the hell I like and lie on beaches and stuff. It depends what transpires from the meeting, said Zani Whoop. Zaphod, who, who is this man? said Trillian shakily, wobbling to her feet. What, what's he doing here? And why is he on our ship? He's a very stupid man said Zaphod, who wants to meet the man who rules the universe. Ha! Ah, said Trillian, taking the bottle from Zaphod and helping herself. A social climber. The major problem, one of the major problems, for there are several, one of the many major problems with governing people is that of who you get to do it. Or rather, who manages to get people to let them do it to them. To summarise, it is a well-known fact that those people who most want to rule people are ipso facto those least suited to do it, and don't we fucking know it. To summarise the summary, anyone who is capable of getting themselves made president should, on no account, be allowed to do the job. To summarise the summary of the summary, people are a problem. And so, this is the situation we find. A succession of galactic presidents who so much enjoy the fun and palaver of being in power that they very rarely notice that they're not. And somewhere in the shadows behind them, who? Who can possibly rule if no one who wants to do it, can be allowed to. On a small, obscure world, somewhere in the middle of nowhere in particular, nowhere, that is, that could ever be found, since it is protected by a vast field of unprobability, to which only six men in this galaxy have a key, it was raining. It was bucketing down, and had been for hours. It beat the top of the sea into a mist. It pounded the trees. It churned and slopped a stretch of scrubby land near the sea into a mud bath. The rain pelted and danced on the corrugated iron roof of the small shack that stood in the middle of this patch of scrubby land. It obliterated the small rough pathway that led from the shack down to the seashore and smashed apart the neat piles of interesting shells which had been placed there. The noise of the rain on the roof of the shack was deafening within, but went largely unnoticed by its occupant, whose attention was otherwise engaged. 
He was a tall, shambling man, with rough, straw-coloured hair that was damp from the leaking roof. His clothes were shabby, his back was hunched, and his eyes, though open, seemed closed. In his shack was an old, beaten-up armchair, an old, scratched table, an old mattress, some cushions, and a stove that was small but warm. There was also an old, slightly weather-beaten cat, and this was currently the focus of the man's attention. He bent his shambling form over it. Pussy, 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 he said. Coochie, 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 coo. Pussy want his fish. Nice piece of fish. Pussy want it. The cat seemed undecided on the matter. It pawed rather condescendingly at the piece of fish the man was holding out, and then got distracted by a piece of dust on the floor. Pussy not eat his fish. Pussy get thin and waste away, I think, said the man. Doubt crept into his voice. I imagine this is what will happen, he said. But how can I tell? He proffered the fish again. Pussy think, he said, eat fish or not eat fish. I think it is better if I don't get involved, he sighed. I think fish is nice, but then I think that rain is wet, so who am I to judge? He left the fish on the floor for the cat and retired to his seat. Ah, I see you seem, I seem to see you eating it he said at last, as the cat exhausted the entertainment possibilities of the speck of dust and pounced onto the fish. I like it when I see you eat fish, said the man, because in my mind you will waste away if you don't. He picked up from the table a piece of paper and the stub of a pencil. He held one in one hand and the other in the other and experimented with the different ways of bringing them together. He tried holding the pencil under the paper, then over the paper, then next to the paper. He tried wrapping the paper round the pencil. He tried rubbing the stubby end of the pencil against the paper, and then he tried rubbing the sharp end of the pencil against the paper. It made a mark and he was delighted with the discovery. He was every day. He picked up another piece of paper from the table. This had a crossword on it. He studied it briefly and filled in a couple of clues before losing interest. He tried sitting on one of his hands and was intrigued by the feel of the bones on his hip. Fish come from far away, he said, or so I'm told, or so I imagine I'm told. When the men come, or when in my mind the men come in their six black shiny ships, do they come in your mind too? What do you see, pussy? 
He looked at the cat, which was more concerned with getting the fish down as rapidly as possible than it was with these speculations. And when I hear their questions, do, do you hear questions? What do their voices mean to you? Perhaps, perhaps you just think they're singing songs to you. He reflected on this and saw the flaw in the supposition. Perhaps they are singing songs to you, he said, and I just think they're asking me questions. He paused again. Sometimes he would pause for days just to see what it was like. Do you think they came today? he said. I do. There's mud on the floor, cigarettes and whiskey on the table, fish on a plate for you, and a memory of them in my mind. Hardly conclusive evidence, I know, but then all evidence is circumstantial. And look what else they've left me. He reached over to the table and pulled some things off it. Crosswords, dictionaries, and a calculator. He played with the calculator for an hour, whilst the cat went to sleep and the rain outside continued to pour. Eventually, he put the calculator aside. I think I must be right in thinking they ask me questions he said, to come all that way and to leave all these things just for the privilege of singing songs to you would be very strange behaviour. Or so it seems to me. Who can tell? Who can tell? From the table he picked up a cigarette and lit it with a spill from the stove. He inhaled deeply and sat back. I think I saw another ship in the sky today, he said at last. A big white one. I've never seen a big white one. Just the six black ones, and the six green ones, and the others who say they come from so far away. Never a big white one. Perhaps six small black ones can look like big white one, big white one at certain times. Perhaps I would like a glass of whiskey. Yes, that seems more likely. He stood up and found a glass that was lying on the floor by his mattress. He poured in a measure from his whiskey bottle. He sat again. Perhaps some other people are coming to see me, he said. A hundred yards away, pelted by the torrential rain, lay the Heart of Gold. Its hatchway opened and three figures emerged, huddling into themselves to keep the rain off their faces. In there, shouted Trillian above the noise of the rain. Yes said Zarni Whoop. That shack? Yes. Weird, said Zaphod. But it's in the middle of nowhere, said Trillian. We must have come to the wrong place. You, 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 you can't rule the universe from inside a shack. 
They hurried through the pouring rain and arrived wet through at the door. They knocked. They shivered. <coughs> Pardon me. The door opened. Hello, said the man. Ah, uh, excuse me, said Zani Whoop. I have reason to believe. Do you rule the universe? said Zaphod. The man smiled at him. I try not to, he said. Are you wet? Zaphod looked at him in astonishment. Wet, he cried. Doesn't it look as if we're wet? That's how it looks to me, said the man. But how you feel about it might be an altogether different matter. If you find warmth makes you dry, you'd better come in. They went in. They looked around the tiny shack. Zarniwoop with slight distaste, Trillian with interest, Zaphod with delight. Hey, er, he said, what's your name? The man looked at them doubtfully. I don't know. Why, do you think I should have one? It seems very odd to give a bundle of vague sensory perceptions a name. He invited Trillian to sit in the chair. He sat on the edge of the chair. Zarniwoop leaned stiffly against the table, and Zaphod lay on the mattress. Wow-wee, said Zaphod. The seat of power, he tickled the cat. Listen, said Zarniwoop, I, I must ask you some questions. All right, said the man kindly. You can sing to my cat if you'd like. Would he like that? asked Zaphod. You'd better ask him, said the man. Does he talk? I have no memory of him talking, said the man, but I am very unreliable. Zarniwoop pulled some notes out of a pocket. Now, he said, you do rule the universe, do you? How can I tell, said the man. Zarniwoop ticked off a note on the paper. How long have you been doing this? Ah, said the man. This is a question about the past, is it? Zarniwoop looked at him in puzzlement. This wasn't exactly what he'd been expecting. Yes, he said. How can I tell? said the man, that the past isn't a fiction designed to account for the discrepancy between my immediate phys physical sensations and my state of mind. <coughs> Zarniwoop stared at him. The steam began to rise from his sodden clothes. So, you answer all questions like this? he said. The man answered quickly. I say what it occurs to me to say when I think I hear people say things. More I cannot say. Zaphod laughed happily. I'll drink to that, he said, and pulled out the bottle of Jank's spirit. 
he leapt up and handed the bottle to the ruler of the universe, who took it with pleasure. Good on you, great ruler, he said. Tell it like it is. No, listen to me, said Zani Whoop. People come to you, do they? In ships. I think so, said the man. He handed the bottle to Trillian. And they ask you, said Zani Whoop, to take decisions for them about people's lives, about worlds, about economies, about wars, about everything going on out there in the universe. Out there? said the man. Out where? Out there! said Zani Whoop, pointing at the door. How can you tell that there's anything out there? said the man politely. The doors closed. The rain continued to pound the roof. Inside the shack it was warm. But you you know there's a whole universe out there, cried Zani Woo. You can't dodge your responsibilities by saying they don't exist. The ruler of the universe thought for a long while, whilst Zani Whoop quivered with anger. You're very sure of your facts, he said at last. I couldn't trust the thinking of a man who takes the universe, if there is one, for granted. Zani Whoop still quivered, but was silent. I only decide about my universe, continued the man quietly. My universe is my eyes and my ears. Anything else is hearsay. But don't you believe in anything? The man shrugged and picked up his cat. I don't understand what you mean, he said. You don't understand that what you decide in this shack of yours affects the lives and fates of millions of people. This is all monstrously wrong. I don't know. I've never met all these people you speak of. Neither, I suspect, have you. They only exist in words we hear. It is folly to say you know what is happening to other people. Only they know, if they exist. They have their own universes of their eyes and ears. Trillian said, I think I'm just popping outside for a moment. She left and walked into the rain. Do you believe other people exist? insisted Zani Whoop. I have no opinion. How can I say? Uh, I'd better see what's up with Trillian, said Zaphod, and slipped out. Outside he said to her, I think the universe is in pretty good hands, yeah? Very good, said Trillian. They walked off into the rain. Inside, Zani Whoop continued, But don't you understand that people live or die on your word. The ruler of the universe waited for as long as he could. When he heard the faint sound of the ship's engines starting, 
He spoke to cover it. It's nothing to do with me, he said. I am not involved with people. The Lord knows I am not a cruel man. Ah! Ha-ha! barked Zaniwoop. You say, you say the Lord, you believe in something. My cat, said the man benignly, picking it up and stroking it. I call him the Lord. I am kind to him. All right, said Zaniwoop, pressing home his point. How do you know he exists? How do you know he knows you to be kind, or enjoys what he thinks of your kindness? I don't, said the man with a smile. I have no idea. It merely pleases me to behave in a certain way to what appears to be a cat. Do you behave any differently? Please, I think I am tired. Zaniwoop heaved a thoroughly dissatisfied sigh and looked about. Where are the other two? he said suddenly. What other two? said the ruler of the universe, settling back into his chair, refilling his whiskey glass. Beeblebrox and the girl, the, t the two who were just here! I remember no one. The past is a fiction to account for. Stuff it! snapped Zaniwoop and ran out into the rain. There was no ship. The rain continued to churn the mud. There was no sign to show where the ship had been. He hollered into the rain. He turned and ran back to the shack and found it locked. The ruler of the universe dozed lightly in his chair. After a while, he played with the pencil and the paper again, and was delighted when he discovered how to make a mark with one on the other. Various noises continued outside, but he didn't know whether they were real or not. He then talked to his table for a week to see how it would react. Quick slurpity. <clears throat> the stars came out that night, dazzling in their brilliance and clarity. Ford and Arthur had walked more miles than they had any means of judging, and finally stopped to rest. The night was cool and balmy, the air pure, the sub-ether sensomatic totally silent. A wonderful stillness hung over the world, a magical calm which, combined with the soft fragrances of the woods, the quiet chatter of insects, and the brilliant light of the stars to soothe their jangle. Uh, uh, sorry, we'll try that again. A wonderful stillness hung over the world, a magical calm, which, combined with the soft fragrances of the woods, the quiet chatter of insects, and the brilliant light of the stars, served to soothe their jangled spirits. Even Ford Prefect, who had seen more worlds than he could count on a long afternoon, was moved to wonder if this 
was the most beautiful he had ever seen. All that day they had passed through rolling green hills and valleys, richly covered with grasses, wild-scented flowers, and tall, thickly-leaved trees. The sun had warmed them, light breezes had kept them cool, and Ford Prefect had checked his sub-ether sensomatic at less and less frequent intervals, and had exhibited less and less annoyance at its continued silence. He was beginning to think he liked it here. Cool though the night air was, they slept soundly and comfortably in the open, and awoke a few hours later with the light dewfall, feeling refreshed but hungry. Ford had stuffed some small rolls into his satchel at Milliway's, and they breakfasted off these before moving on. So far they had wandered purely at random, but now they struck out firmly eastwards, feeling that if they were going to explore this world, then they should have some clear idea of where they had come from and where they were going. Shortly before noon they had had their first indication that the world they had landed on was not an uninhabited one. A half-glimpsed face amongst the trees watching them. It vanished at the moment they both saw it, but the image that they were both left with was of a humanoid creature. Curious to see them, but not alarmed. Half an hour later they glimpsed another such face, and ten minutes after that, another. A minute later they stumbled into a wide clearing, and stopped short. Before them, in the middle of the clearing, stood a group of about two dozen men and women. They stood still and quiet, facing Ford and Arthur. Around some of the women huddled some small children, and behind the group was a ramshackle array of small dwellings made of mud and branches. Ford and Arthur held their breath. The tallest of the men stood little over five feet high. They all stooped forward slightly, had longish arms and lowish foreheads, and clear bright eyes with which they stared intently at the strangers. Seeing that they carried no weapons and made no move towards them, Ford and Arthur relaxed slightly. For a while the two groups simply stared at each other, neither side making any move. The natives seemed puzzled by the intruders, and whilst they showed no sign of aggression, they were quite clearly not issuing any invitations. Nothing happened. For a full two minutes, nothing continued to happen. After two minutes, Ford decided it was time something happened. Hello, he said. The women drew their children slightly closer to them. The men made hardly any discernible move, and yet their whole disposition made it clear that the greeting was not welcome. It was not resented any in any great degree. It was just not welcome. One of the men, who'd been standing slightly forward of the rest of the group, and who might therefore have been their leader, 
stepped forward. His face was quiet and calm, almost serene. He said. This caught Arthur by surprise. He'd grown so used to receiving an instantaneous and unconscious translation of everything he'd heard via the babelfish lodged in his ear that he'd ceased to be aware of it, and he was only reminded of its presence now by the fact that it didn't seem to be working. Vague shadows of meaning had flickered at the back of his mind, but there was nothing that he could get any firm grasp on. He guessed, correctly as it happens, that these people had as yet evolved no more than the barest rudiments of language, and that the babelfish was therefore powerless to help. He glanced at Ford, who was infinitely more experienced in these matters. I think, said Ford out of the corner of his mouth, he's asking us if we'd mind walking on around the edge of the village. A moment later, a gesture from the man-creature seemed to confirm this. <coughs> continued the man-creature. The general gist, said Ford, as far as I can make out, is that we are welcome to continue our journey in any way we like, but if we would walk around his village rather than through it, it would make them all very happy. So what do we do? I think we make them all very happy, said Ford. Slowly and watchfully they walked around the perimeter of the clearing. This seemed to go down very well with the natives, who bowed to them very slightly and then went on about their business. Ford and Arthur continued their journey through the wood. A few hundred yards past the clearing, they suddenly came upon a small pile of fruit lying in their path. Berries that looked remarkably like raspberries and blackberries, and pulpy green-skinned fruit that looked remarkably like pears. So far they had steered clear of the fruit and berries they'd seen, though the trees and bushes were laden with them. Look at it this way, Ford Prefect had said, fruit and berries on strange planets either make you live or make you die. Therefore the point at which you start toying with them is when you're going to die if you don't. That way you stay ahead. The secret of healthy hitchhiking is to eat junk food. They looked at the pile that lay in their path with suspicion. It looked so good, it made them almost dizzy with hunger. Look at it this way, said Ford. Um, yes, said Arthur. Hmm. I'm, I'm trying to think of a way of looking at it, which means we get to eat it, said Ford. The leaf-dappled sun gleamed on the plump skins of the things which looked like pears. The things which looked like raspberries and strawberries were fatter and riper than any Arthur had ever seen, even in ice cream commercials. Why don't we eat them and think about it afterwards? he said. Maybe that's what they want us to do. All right. Look at it this way. Sounds good so far. It's there for us to eat. 
Either it's good or it's bad. Either they want to feed us or to poison us. If it's poisonous and we don't eat it, they'll just attack us in some other way. If we don't eat, we lose out either way. I like the way you're thinking, said Ford. Now eat one. Hesitantly, Arthur picked up one of the things that looked like pears. I always thought that about the Garden of Eden story, said Ford. Eh? Garden of Eden? Tree? Apple? That bit, remember? Yes, of course I do. Your god person puts an apple in a tree in the middle of a garden and says, Do what you like, guys. Oh, but don't eat the apple. Surprise, surprise. They eat it, and he leaps out from behind a bush shouting, Gotcha! It wouldn't have made any difference if they hadn't eaten it. Why not? Because if you're dealing with somebody that has the sort of mentality which likes leaving hats on the pavement with bricks under them, you know perfectly well they won't give up. They'll get you in the end. What are you talking about? Never mind. Eat the fruit. You know, this place almost looks like the Garden of Eden. Eat the fruit. Sounds quite like it, too. Arthur took a bite from the thing which looked like a pear. It's a pear, he said. A few moments later, when they'd eaten the lot, Ford Prefect turned round and called out, Thank you! Th thank you very much, he called. You're, you're very, very kind. They went on their way. For the next fifty miles of their journey eastward, they kept on finding the occasional gift of fruit lying in their path, and though they once or twice had a quick glimpse of a, of a native man-creature amongst the trees, they never again made direct contact. They decided they rather liked a race of people who made it clear that they were grateful simply to be left alone. The fruit and berries stopped after fifty miles, but that was because that was where the sea started. Having no pressing calls on their time, they built a raft and crossed the sea. It was relatively calm, only about sixty miles wide, and they had a, a reasonably pleasant crossing, landing in a country that was at least as beautiful as the one they had just left. Life was, in short, ridiculously easy, and for a while at least they were able to cope with the problems of aimlessness and isolation by deciding simply to ignore them. When the craving for company became too great, they would know where to find it. But for the moment, they were happy to feel that the Golgofrinchians were hundreds of miles behind them. Nevertheless, Ford Prefect began to use his sub-ether sensomatic more often again. Only once did he pick up a signal, but that was so faint and from such an enormous distance that it depressed him more than the silence that had otherwise continued unbroken. On a whim, they turned northwards. After weeks of travelling, they came to another sea, built another raft, and crossed it. This time it was harder going. The climate was getting colder. 
Arthur suspected a streak of masochism in Ford Prefect. The increasing difficulty of the journey seemed to give him a sense of purpose that was otherwise lacking. He strode on, onwards, onwards, relentlessly. Their journey northwards brought them into steep mountainous terrain of breathtaking sweep and beauty. The vast, jagged, snow-covered peaks ravished their senses. The cold began to bite into their bones. They wrapped themselves in animal skins and furs, which Ford, Pre Ford Prefect acquired by a technique he once learned from a couple of ex-Prowlite monks running a mind-surfing resort in the hills of Hunian. The galaxy is littered with ex-Prowlite monks, all on the make, because the mental control techniques the Order has evolved as a form of devotional discipline are, frankly, sensational and extraordinary numbers of monks leave the order just after they finish their devotional training and just before they take their final vows to stay locked in small metal boxes for the rest of their lives. Ford's technique seemed to consist mainly of standing still for a while and smiling. After a while, an animal, a deer perhaps, would appear from out of the trees and watch him cautiously. Ford would continue to smile at it. Its eyes would soften and shine, and he would seem to radiate a deep and universal love, a love which reached out to the embrace of all creation. A wonderful quietness would descend on the surrounding countryside, peaceful and serene, emanating from this transfigured man. Slowly, the deer would approach, step by step, until it was almost nuzzling him. Whereupon, Ford Prefect would reach out and break its neck. Pheromone control, he said it was. You just have to know how to generate the right smell. A few days after landing in this mountainous land, they hit a coastline which swept diagonally before them from the southwest to the northeast. A coastline of monumental grandeur. Deep, majestic ravines, soaring pinnacles of ice. Fjords. For two further days they scrambled and climbed over the rocks and glaciers, awestruck with beauty. Arthur! yelled Ford suddenly. It was the afternoon of the second day, and Arthur was, uh, was sitting on a high rock watching, watching the thundering sea smashing itself against the craggy promontories. Arthur! yelled Ford again. Arthur looked to where Ford's voice had come from, carried faintly in the wind. Ford had gone to examine a glacier, and Arthur found him there, crouching by the solid wall of blue ice. He was tense with excitement. His eyes darted up to meet Arthur's. Look, he said, look! Arthur looked. He saw the solid wall of blue ice. Yes, he said, it's a glacier. I've already seen it. No, said Ford, you've looked at it. You haven't seen it. Look! Ford was pointing 
deep into the heart of the ice. Arthur peered. He saw nothing but vague shadows. Move back from it, insisted Ford. Look again. Arthur moved back and looked again. No, he said and shrugged. What am I supposed to be looking for? And suddenly he saw it. You see it? He saw it. His mouth started to speak, but his brain decided it hadn't got anything to say yet, and shut it again. His brain then started to contend with the problem of what his eyes told it they were looking at, but in so doing relinquished control of the mouth, which promptly fell open again. One more, once more gathering up the jaw, his brain lost control of his left hand, which then wandered around in an aimless fashion. For a second or so, the brain tried to catch the left hand without letting go of the mouth, and simultaneously tried to think about what was buried in the ice, which is probably why the legs went, and Arthur dropped slowly, restfully, to the ground. The thing that had been causing all this neural upset was a network of shadows in the ice, about eighteen inches beneath the surface. Looked at from the right angle, they resolved into the solid shapes of letters from an alien alphabet, each about three feet high, and for those like Arthur, who couldn't read Magrathean, there was above the letters the outline of a face hanging in the ice. It was an old face, thin and distinguished, careworn but not unkind. It was the face of the man who had won an award for designing the coastline they now knew themselves to be standing on. A thin whine filled the air. It whirled and howled through the trees, upsetting the squirrels. A few birds flew off in disgust. The noise danced and skittered around the clearing. It whooped, it rasped, it generally offended. The captain, however, regarded the lone bagpiper with an indulgent eye. Little could disturb his equanimity. Indeed, once he had got over the loss of his gorgeous bath during that unpleasantness in the swamp all those months ago, he had begun to find his new life remarkably congenial. A hollow had been scooped out of a large rock which stood in the middle of the clearing, and in this he would bask daily, whilst attendants sloshed water over him. Not particularly warm water, it must be said, as they hadn't yet worked out a way of heating it. Never mind, that would come. And in the meantime, search parties were scouring the countryside far and wide for a hot spring, preferably one in a nice leafy glade. And if it was near a soap mine, perfection. To those who said they had a feeling that soap wasn't found in mines, the captain had ventured to suggest that perhaps that was because no one had looked hard enough, 
and this possibility had been reluctantly acknowledged. No, life was very pleasant. And the great thing about it was that when the hot spring was found, complete with leafy glade en suite, and when in the fullness of time the cry came reverberating across the hills that the soap mine had been located and was producing 500 cakes a day, it would be more pleasant still. It was very important to have things to look forward to. Well, screech, well, well, how honk, squeak, went the bagpipes, increasing the captain's already, already considerable pleasure at the thought that any moment now they might stop. That was something he looked forward to very much as well. What else was pleasant? he asked himself. Well, so many things. The red and gold of the trees, now that autumn was approaching. The peaceful chatter of scissors a few feet from his bath, where a couple of hairdressers were exercising their skills on a dozing art director and his assistant. The sunlight gleaming off the six shiny telephones lined up along the, the edge of his rock-hewn bath. The only thing nicer than a phone that didn't ring all the time, or indeed at all, were six phones that didn't ring all the time, or indeed at all. Nicest of all was the happy murmur of all the hundreds of people slowly assembling in the clearing around him to watch the afternoon committee meeting. The captain punched his rubber duck playfully on the beak. The afternoon committee meetings were his favourite. Other eyes watched the assembling crowds. High in a tree, on the edge of the clearing, squatted Ford Prefect, lately returned from foreign climes. After his six-month journey, he was lean and healthy. His eyes gleamed, he wore a reindeer-skin coat, and his beard was as thick his beard was thick, as thick, and his face as bronzed as a country rock singer's. He and Arthur Dent had been watching the Golga Frinchens for almost a week now, and Ford had decided it was time to stir things up a bit. The clearing was now full. Hundreds of men and women lounged around, chatting, eating fruit, playing cards, and generally having a fairly relaxed time of it. Their tracksuits were now all dirty and even torn, but they all had immaculately styled hair. Ford was puzzled to see that many of them had stuffed their tracksuits full of leaves and wondered if this was meant to be some form of insulation against the coming winter. Ford's eyes narrowed. They couldn't be interested in botany all of a sudden, could they? In the middle of these speculations, the captain's voice rose above the hubbub. All right, he said, I'd like to call this meeting to some sort of order, if that's at all possible. Is that all right with everybody? He smiled genially. In a minute, when, when you're all ready. The talking gradually died away, and the clearing fell silent except for the bagpiper, who seemed to be in some wild and uninhabitable musical world of his own. A few of those in his immediate vicinity threw some leaves to him. If there was any reason for this, 
then it escaped Ford Prefect for the moment. A small group of people had clustered round the captain, and one of them was clearly preparing to speak. He did this by standing up, clearing his throat, and then gazing off into the distance, as if to signify to the crowd that he would be with them in a minute. The crowd were, of course, riveted, and all turned their eyes upon him. A moment of silence followed, which Ford's judged to be the right dramatic moment to make his entry. The man turned to speak. Ford dropped down out of the tree. Hi there, he said. The crowd swivelled around. Ah, my dear fellow, cried the captain. Got any matches on you, or a lighter, or, or anything like that? No, said Ford, sounding a little deflated. It wasn't what he'd prepared. He decided he'd been he'd better be a little stronger on the subject. No, no, I haven't, he continued. No matches. Instead, I bring you news. Oh, pity, said the captain. We've all run out, you see. Haven't had a hot bath in weeks. Ford refused to be headed off. I bring you news, he said, of a discovery that might interest you. Is it on the agenda? snapped the man who Ford had interrupted. Ford smiled a broad country rock singer smile. Now, come on, he said. Well, I'm sorry said the man huffily, but speaking as a management consultant of many years standing, I must insist on the importance of observing the committee structure. Ford looked around the crowd. He's mad, you know, he said. This is a prehistoric planet. Address the chair, snapped the management consultant. There isn't a chair, explained Ford. There's only a rock. The management consultant decided that testiness was what the situation now called for. Well, call it a chair, he said testily. Why not call it a rock? asked Ford. You obviously have no conception, said the management consultant, now abandoning testiness in favour of good old-fashioned hauteur, of modern business methods. And you... Have absolutely no conception of where you are, said Ford. A girl with a strident voice leapt to her feet and deployed it. Shut up, you two! I want to table a motion, she said. You mean boulder a motion? tittered a hairdresser. Order! Order! yapped the management consultant. All right, said Ford. Let's see how you are doing. He plonked himself down on the ground to see how long he could keep his temper. The captain made a sort of conciliatory harumping noise. <laughs> I would like to call to order, he said pleasantly, the 573rd meeting of the Colonisation Committee of Fintel Woodlewicks. Ten seconds, thought Ford, as he leapt to his feet again. This is futile! he exclaimed. Five hundred and seventy-three committee meetings, and you haven't even discovered 
fire yet. If you would care, said the girl with the strident voice, to examine the agenda sheet. Agenda rock, trilled the hairdresser happily. Thank you, I've made that point, said Ford. You will see, continued the girl firmly, that we are having a report from the hairdresser's fire development subcommittee today. Ah, oh, ah, said the hairdresser with a sheepish look which is recognised the whole gallery, galaxy over as meaning, oh, uh, will next Tuesday do? All right, said Ford, rounding on him. What have you done? What are you going to do? What are your thoughts on fire development? Well, I don't know, said the hairdresser. All they gave me was a couple of sticks. So, what have you done with them? Nervously, the hairdresser fished in his tracksuit top and handed over the fruits of his labour to Ford. Ford held them up for all to see. Curling tongs, he said. The crowd applauded. <sighs> Never mind, said Ford. Rome wasn't burnt in a day. The crowd hadn't the faintest idea what he was talking about, but they loved it nevertheless. They applauded. Well, you're obviously being totally naive, of course, said the girl. When you've been in marketing as long as I have, you'll know that before any new product can be developed, it has to be properly researched. We've got to find out what people want from fire, how they relate to it, what sort of image it has for them crowd were tense. They were expecting something wonderful from Ford. Stick it up your nose, he said. Which is precisely the sort of thing we need to know, insisted the girl. Do people want fire that can be fitted nasally? Do you? Ford asked the crowd. Yes, shouted some. No, shouted others happily. They don't know. They just thought it was great. And the wheel, said the captain. What about this wheel thingy? It sounds a terribly interesting project. Ah, said the marketing girl. Well, we're having a little difficulty there. Difficulty? exclaimed Ford. Difficult? What, what do you mean, difficult? It's the single simplest machine in the entire universe. The marketing girl soured him with a look. Look, all right, Mr. Wise Guy, she said. You're so clever. You tell us what colour it should be. The crowd went wild. One up to the home team, they thought. Ford simply shrugged his shoulders and sat down again. Oh, mighty Zarquan, he said. Have none of you done anything? As if in answer to his question, there was a sudden clamour of noise from the entrance to the clearing. The crowd couldn't believe the amount of entertainment they were getting this afternoon. In marched a squad of about a dozen men, dressed in the remnants of their Golgofrinch and 3rd Regiment dress uniforms. About half of them still carried killer zap guns. The rest now carried spears, which they struck together as they marched. They looked bronzed, healthy, and utterly exhausted and bedraggled. They clattered to a halt, 
and banged to attention. One of them fell over and never moved again. Captain, sir, cried number two, for he was their leader. Permission to report, sir. Uh, uh, yes, all, all, all right, number two. Uh, well, welcome back and all that. Uh, find any hot springs, said the captain, not a little despondently. No, sir. Thought you wouldn't. Number two strode through the crowd and presented arms before the bath. We have discovered another continent. When was this? It lies across the sea, said number two, narrowing his eyes significantly. To the east. Ah! Number two turned to face the crowd. He raised his gun above his head. This is going to be great, thought the crowd. We have declared war upon it. Wild, abandoned cheering broke out in all corners of the clearing. This was beyond all expectation. Wait a minute, shouted Ford Prefect. Wait a minute? He leapt to his feet and demanded silence. After a while, he got it, or at least the best silence he could hope for under the circumstances. The circumstances were that the bagpiper was now spontaneously composing a national anthem. Do we have to have the piper? demanded Ford. Uh, oh, oh yes, said the captain. We've given him a grant. Ford considered opening this idea up for debate, but quickly decided that that way madness lay. Instead, he slung a well-judged rock at the piper and turned to face number two. War? he said. Yes! number two gazed contemptuously at Ford Prefect. On the next continent. Yes! Total warfare! The war to end all wars! But there's no one even living there yet. Ah, interesting, thought the crowd. Nice point. Number two's gaze hovered, undisturbed. In this respect, his eyes were like a couple of mosquitoes that hover purposefully three inches from your nose and refuse to be deflected by arm thrashes, fly swats, or rolled newspapers. I know that, he said, but... There will be some day. So we have left an open-ended ultimatum. What? And blown up a few military installations. Captain leaned forward out of his bath. Oh, military installations, number two, he said. For a moment the eyes wavered. Yes, sir. Well, potential military installations. Oh, all right, trees. The moment of uncertainty passed. His eyes flicked like whips over his audience. And, he roared, we interrogated a gazelle. He flipped his killer zap smartly under his arm and marched off through the pandemonium that had now erupted through the ecstatic crowd. A few steps was all he managed before he was caught up and carried shoulder high for a lap of honour around the clearing. Ford sat 
and idly tapped a couple of stones together. So, what else have you done? He inquired after these celebrations had died down. We have started a culture, said the marketing girl. Oh, yeah? Yes, one of our film producers is already making a fascinating documentary about the indigenous cavemen of the area. They're not cavemen. They look like cavemen. Do they live in caves? Well, they live in huts. Perhaps they're having their caves redecorated, called a wag out from the crowd. Ford rounded on him angrily. Very funny, he said. But have you noticed that they're dying out? On their journey back, Ford and Arthur had come across two derelict villages and the bodies of many natives in the woods where they'd crept away to die. Those that still lived seemed stricken and listless, as if they were suffering from some disease of the spirit rather than of the body. They moved sluggishly and with an infinite sadness. Their future had been taken away from them. Dying out! repeated Ford firmly. Do you know what that means? Er, uh, we shouldn't sell them any life insurance? called out the wag again. Ford ignored him pointedly and appealed to the whole crowd. Can you try and understand, he said, that it's just since we've arrived here that they've started dying out? That fact comes over terribly well in this film said the marketing girl, and just gives it that poignant twist, which is the hallmark of a really great documentary. The producer's very committed. He should be, muttered Ford. I gather, said the girl, turning to address the captain, who was beginning to nod off, that he wants to make one about you next, captain. Oh, oh, really? He said, coming to with a start. That's awfully nice. He's got a very strong angle on it. You know, the burden of responsibility, the loneliness of command. The captain hummed and hawed about this for a minute. Oh, oh, well, I wouldn't overstress that angle, you know, he said finally. One's, one's never really alone with a rubber duck. He held the duck aloft, and it got an appreciative round of applause from the crowd. All this while, the management consultant had been sitting in stony silence. His fingertips pressed to his temples to indicate that he was waiting, and would wait, all day if it was necessary. At this point, he decided that he would not wait all day after all, and would merely pretend that the last half hour hadn't actually happened. He rose to his feet. If, he said tersely, we could move for a moment... On to the subject of fiscal policy. Fiscal policy? Whooped Ford Prefect. Fiscal policy? The management consultant gave him a look that only a lungfish could have copied. Fiscal policy, he repeated. That is what I said. How? How can you have money? demanded Ford, if none of you actually produces anything. It doesn't grow on trees, you know. If you would allow me to continue, 
Ford nodded dejectedly. Thank you. Since we decided a few weeks ago to adopt the leaf as official legal tender, we have, of course, all become immensely rich. Ford stared in disbelief at the crowd, who were now murmuring appreciatively at this and greedily fingering the wads of leaves with which their tracksuits were stuffed. But we have also, continued the management consultant, run into a small inflation problem on account of the high level of leaf availability, which means that I gather that the current going rate has something like three deciduous forests buying one ship's peanut. Murmurs of alarm came from the crowd. The management consultant waved them down. So, 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 in order to obviate this problem, he continued, and effectively revaluate the leaf, we are about to embark on a massive defoliation campaign and burn down all the forests. I think you'll all agree that's a sensible move under the circumstances. The crowd seemed a little uncertain about this for a second or two until someone pointed out how much this would increase the value of the leaves in their pockets, whereupon they let out whoops of delight and gave the management consultant a standing ovation. The accountants amongst them looked forward to a profitable autumn. You are all mad, explained Ford Prefect. You're absolutely balmy, he suggested. You're a bunch of raving nutters, he opined. The tide of opinion was beginning to turn against him. What had started out as excellent entertainment had now, in the crowd's view, deteriorated into mere abuse, and since this abuse was in the main directed at them, they wearied of it. Sensing this shift in the wind, the marketing girl turned on him. Is it perhaps in order, she demanded, to inquire what you've been doing all these months then? You and that other interloper have been missing since the day we arrived. We've been on a journey, said Ford. We went to try and find out something about this planet. Oh, said the girl archly, doesn't sound very productive to me. No. Well... I've got news for you, my love. We have discovered this planet's future. Ford waited for this statement to have its effect. It didn't have any. They didn't know what on earth he was talking about. He continued. It doesn't matter. A pair of fetid dingo's kidneys what you all choose to do from now on. Burn the forests, anything. It won't make a scrap of difference. Your future history has already happened. Two million years you've got, and that's it. At the end of that time, your race will be dead, gone, and good riddance to you. Remember that. Two million years crowd muttered to itself in annoyance. 
People as rich as they had suddenly become shouldn't be obliged to listen to this sort of gibberish. Perhaps they could tip the fellow a leaf or two and he would go away. They didn't need to bother. Ford was already stalking out of the clearing, pausing only to shake his head at number two, who was already firing his kilozap into some neighbouring trees. He turned back once. <laughs> two million years, he said, laughing. Well, said the captain with a soothing smile, still time for some, a few more baths then. Could someone pass me the sponge? I, I just dropped it over the side. And there, at twenty-three minutes past ten, we'll leave it for this week. Thank you very much, as always, for your company, everybody. I really appreciate uh, you turning up and having a listen to this. Uh, as always, I will be um, uh, releasing one of the earlier episodes onto podcast so it'll be on uh, itunes and spotify and so on in the next couple of days uh, and this one will will appear in due course um, but uh, thank you very very much again for your company everybody i really 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 do appreciate you coming along and listening to this it makes my evening so much more fun uh, and see you in a week's time um, have a, a good week take care in the uh, the ever more opening up world out there uh, look after yourselves and uh, see you next week. See you guys. Thanks a lot. <laughs>